do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may be able to prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 12:2. This is Resistance and Reformation on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. In 1204, Latin crusaders from the West sacked Constantinople, stripping the Byzantine emperor and patriarch of their power and sending them into exile. Two years later, Genghis Khan consolidated his control of the Mongol horde and began conquering huge swaths of the Eurasian landmass. By 1274, the Mongols had invaded Russia, destroying Kiev, sending the remnants of the Rush nobility further and further north, deeper into the thick forests bound by the Caucasian steppes. First, Novgorod, and then later Moscow, would assume their place of prominence that once belonged to Kiev alone. This buffeting from within and from without prompted a kind of retrenchment of the Russian Orthodox Church. It became increasingly isolated and ingrown. Its penchant for the mystical was heightened all the more sequestered monastic communities sprang up in secluded and inaccessible thickets of the northern woods. Literacy became exceedingly rare, so the visual iconic elements of piety and worship, always a vital aspect of orthodoxy, became even more ingrained in the everyday practice of believers. But One additional feature of Russian Christianity helped to emphasize this isolation and independence, its predilection for spiritual pilgrimage. From its earliest days, Russian Orthodoxy was characterized by a thriving pilgrimage tradition. Russian Orthodoxy affirmed icons as windows into heaven and therefore afforded pious worshipers with direct mystical access to Jesus, Mary, and the saints, icons associated with particular holy people, places, or events functioned as holy relics with attendant miraculous powers. Russian Orthodoxy therefore ardently encouraged worship with icons. The tradition of taking pilgrimage to the site of the miracle-inducing icons and relics became a pattern of ordinary faithfulness for the masses of believers. Beginning sometime before the 14th century and continuing for the next half-millennium, Tens of thousands, perhaps millions of Russians, both peasants and lords, went out on months-long walking pilgrimages to the great monastic centers and churches in order to worship with and behold the sacred wonder of revered icons and relics. The famous spiritual diary, The Way of a Pilgrim, provides a fascinating view into the lifestyle of a wandering pilgrim. The anonymous author wrote, 
I made up my mind to go to Siberia, to the tomb of St. Innocent of Urkust. My idea was that in the forests and steppes of Siberia, I should travel in greater silence, and therefore in a way that was better for prayer and for healing. And this journey I undertook, all the while saying my oral prayer without stopping. The Russian Orthodox Church has historically derived its uh, powers, its doctrine, and its vision from the Greek Orthodox Church of Byzantium. But because contact with Constantinople became more erratic and sporadic over time, and then ceased altogether after the fall of Constantinople to the Ottoman Turks in 1453, in practice, the churches were for all practical purposes entirely independent of one another. When the news of uh, the fall of Constantinople reached the Grand Duchy of Moscow, a prominent Russian monk, Foma of Tiver, wrote an apocalyptic prophecy, the eulogy of the pious Grand Prince Boris Alexandrovich in which he proclaimed that Moscow was now the new Rome, or more precisely, the third Rome. Now, it was a title previously claimed by Simeon I of Bulgaria in 913, by Stefan Uras of Albania in 1345, and later by Ferdinand of Aragon and Isabella of Castile in 1502, but nowhere did the notion gain the currency it did with the Russian church. It provided the reigning czar with divine justification for his autocratic rule. It was demonstration for the inevitability of Christian unity under the Russian Orthodox Church and the confirmation of the Moscow prince's calling as the supreme sovereign defender of the Christian faith around the world. In 1472, Ivan III entered into matrimony with the niece of the last Byzantine emperor, and thus the two-headed eagle of the empire legitimately soared over Moscow. Uh, Philetheus, an influential mystic at the Lazarus Monastery in Sakov, declared to the Tsar, the Orthodox Church, like the wife in the Apocalypse, had first run from old to new Rome, but found no peace there because of the union with the Latins at the Eighth Ecumenical Council. Then the Church of Constantinople fell, and the empire fled again to a third Rome, which is now in new great Russia. All Christian empires bow down to you alone, for two Romes are fallen, but the third stands fast. A fourth there cannot be. Your Christian kingdom shall not be given to another. You alone are emperor over all Christians under the sun. Now, one predictable result of the isolation of the Russian church was its entrenched 
traditionalism. The worship, theology, architecture, music, and art remained essentially unchanged over the course of a millennium. Czars came and went, wars came and went, invasions, conquests, and revolutions shifted boundaries and carved out new territories, yet the distinctive traditions of orthodoxy endured. A visitor to a Russian Orthodox service essentially steps back in time. The proliferation of icons on every surface, the dense smell of incense, the ethereal chant, the ornate robes, the complex liturgical rubrics, they all remained virtually unchanged since the time of John Chrysostom. The spiritual practices of prayer, fasting, and contemplation were likewise shaped and maintained by this long, uninterrupted tradition. Monasteries and holy places were preserved and became for the Orthodox anchors of stability and continuity. Rarely did reform movements ruffle the settled certainties of Orthodox traditionalism. But one effort that did reshape it was the necessary restructuring and centralizing of administrative authority because of its isolation, reduced resources, and the difficulty of communicating with the traditional patriarchates of the Eastern Church, it was essential for the Russian church to justify its autonomous self-rule, what came to be known as autocephaly. This allowed the Third Rome to establish its own distinctive and authoritative patriarchate without having to answer directly to the now captive churches of Constantinople, Alexandria, Jerusalem, and Antioch. The ideology that grew up around the doctrine of the Third Rome has animated the Russian spirit and Russian culture from that day to this. It explains so much about Russian history and even uh, current Russian politics and military excursions, uh, that which is altogether inscrutable otherwise. It also serves as a sobering reminder to us of the ongoing necessity in this poor fallen world of both resistance and reformation. I'm George Grant on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. For more information and for resources, go to georgegrant.net.